0: It's human nature to want to help each other. Um, So it is comforting for me to know that in an emergency situation, I have skills and tools that I can use to help somebody to hopefully make, you know, a dark hour and a a bright hour.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Higgs Radio. Today we're having a discussion about... um, CPR, why and how it's so important to have the skill to understand that this can come in handy big time. Today, I got Holly Duncan here with me today. Hi, how you doing? You know, welcome to Heggs Radio. Thank you for having me. This is one person I've been wanting to interview because I have done multiple things in my life that I feel that CPR would have been a tremendous help. So, Holly, tell
0: us a little bit about how long
1: have you been doing CPR?
0: Oh, goodness. Um, My very first American Red Cross CPR class was when I was in high school. I was about 18 years old. Um, Things were a little bit different back then. Uh, I've been teaching for the American Red Cross since about 2008, and then in 2009, I gained my license, training provider and uh, started teaching independently as a subcontractor with the Red Cross. Now we're a strategic partner for the American Red Cross. So we kind of travel quite a bit.
1: Okay. Now, throughout your travels, have you seen a situation where the CPR wouldn't help?
0: Wouldn't help uh yeah i have um where the person was obviously deceased um i'm a former firefighter on top of everything else so i have come Mm. across some some rather hectic scenes where it was obvious
1: now in those scenarios if you felt like did you ever see if you would have got there sooner or could your skills could have saved that person's life
0: There's always, on any emergency scene, going to be shoulda, woulda, couldas, uh, emergency responders. uh, They go there with the intent of doing the absolute best they can. Um, However, there are those situations where it's out of their hands, it's in a higher power's hands. So, yeah, we kind of have to... Learn to handle that situation when there is nothing we can do to help. We try to do everything we can, no matter what. But there comes a point, ultimately, when there is obviously nothing, nothing you can do. So yeah, on those cases, generally, it's it's contact the coroner. Whoa. <laughs> you know, well, yeah.
1: But I guess it's a sense of empowerment if you know that you got these skills that you can save mostly anybody at, at a critical time.
0: Uh, and so am, am I looking at it wrong? I think it's more of um, comfort and confidence. Um, it's comforting to know that if I have a family member, a loved one, a friend, or even a stranger, that I can help them. It's human nature to want to help each other. Um, so it is comforting for me to know that in an emergency situation, I have skills and tools that I can use to help somebody to hopefully make, you know, a dark hour and a, a bright hour, you know, a, a lighted hour where there's a gleam of hope,
1: you know. So what made you decide to go into teaching?
0: Oh, um, well, uh Basically, when it came to teaching, it was almost second nature for me. As a firefighter in southeast Missouri, I was a firefighter instructor, and I also did all of the pub ed programs uh, for that particular uh, department. Um, So it was kind of a natural move when I left that department to continue teaching. So I went into, quite frankly, I, I worked civil service i I worked in emergency management for a while um so we did some public education programs there as well and i did those and then eventually i found myself at the american red Cross's doorstep and they have a mission that i truly truly believe in helping one another to the best of our abilities
1: what was that mission what was their mission
0: Our mission is to help those who are in need as much as possible. Uh, American Red Cross pretty much responds to disasters of any any kind. Uh, They have the presidential charter, actually, for that. Uh, So anytime there's a declared disaster, anytime there are families in need, uh, say, such as fires or floods or hurricanes, you'll see the American Red Cross responding. Um, In fact, their rapid response teams respond to uh, house fires here in town quite frequently um, when families are having trouble. Um, So they are part of that, but they're also the bigger picture. I'm sure you've heard of the National Crescent. That's all American Red Cross. uh, The uh, national chapter, or the uh, international chapter, and then there's the national chapter, and then, of course, our local chapters. You
1: know we we've been used to kind of the Red Cross old war movies.
0: Oh yes. You know when you watch I'm,
1: old films, mm-hmm. you see the Red Cross
0: truck pull up. Oh, you got to remember though all the old. If you think about like World War II and even Vietnam, a lot of our uh, nurses that responded to that call were Red Cross trained, um, and that's where their beginning started. But the American Red Cross has been around a long time. So are you a nurse? No. I'm an uh, officially an emergency responder, like I said, a former firefighter. Um, my husband and my business partner happens to be a... Now you heard it? You say a husband
1: and business partner.
0: And business partner. Hmm. We're, we're a whole package. Hmm. Uh, he is actually a 35-year paramedic. So I went on fire service side. He went... EMS side hmm. so, so you kind of like We'd often respond to the same scenes Working on different aspects Of that emergency scene Is that how you, you met? No, no. Oh, okay. We actually met going into the military We're both veterans Okay Oh, we met Just the passed day we, Veterans
1: Day, you know, huh? just passed. Yeah. You know, con, congratulations.
0: Thank you. You know. I appreciate that. So um how how
1: has that experience prepared you or opened you up to to what you're doing today?
0: My military service? Yes. Um, well, I've it's it's almost from a very early age, I was taught to, uh, community service is extremely important and to serve thy neighbor, you know, as much as possible. Um, my father was a huge, huge movie buff, and anything dealing with the military, he loved those movies. And quite frankly, we would, I was one of those few children in the house, there were six of us, that he would allow to stay up past bedtime just to watch a movie regarding the military. <laughs> So, um, no grooming there, really. Uh, But (laughs) I ended up eventually going into the military. He always told me I could do whatever I wanted to. Um, So, it was almost a a natural thing for me to go into the military. Um, But the military is very community-based. They very much concentrate on keeping the family units together together and helping out in their communities whenever necessary. So that all, being a civil servant and serving my neighbors, has always been been part of that. And I do credit my dad with that. I really do. So, so, so your dad encouraged you. Oh, yeah.
1: He empowered you. Definitely. To take on the mindset mm-hmm. that you can do anything, that you put your mind to. Exactly.
0: Through.
1: And so you... Chuck on your dad's love for movies and about army and about service that it kind of got embedded into you?
0: Oh, I would definitely say so. I cannot tell you how many times we watched movies like mother goose or any of the old movies, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, a lot of those growing up. Um, but uh, uh, movies like the green beret, things like that, you know, the classics and When it came time to graduate high school, Daddy looked at me and said, what are you going to do with your life? Like that. And I'm Hmm. like, I don't know, Dad. I guess I could go to school. I can get a job as a secretary. I can type. And he's like, Holly, you can do anything you want to do. He says, so go do it. So that's where I made the move to the military.
1: (laughs) Hmm. That is an
0: awesome thing
1: to have your Father tells you.
0: Very, very strong male role model. And quite frankly, it was never ever disappoint mom or dad. <laughs> You'd make them proud. So I did. <laughs> so, do your dad, your dad is still living? No. Unfortunately, both my parents passed away here recently. Unfortunately, not
1: you know. Yeah. But they left a, a, a they wonderful. Left a
0: they left a big impression. They're gone, but they're not forgotten. And a lot of things I do today, I can still hear mom or dad in my ears telling me, yes, Holly, you need to do that. Or, you know, no, Holly, maybe you shouldn't do that one. So So,
1: so (laughs) it got passed on to you while you was little. So is there like a certain age person have to be to get these certifications?
0: Actually, No. There is no age limit as long as they can do the skills, as long as they can uh, confidently and and they understand the skills that they're doing. Quite frankly, I have a granddaughter who is 12 years old. Her name's Kaylin. And Kaylin has gone with me when I've taught classes before. I always thought she was sitting in the back of the room uh you know, minding her own business, doing what she was doing, coloring. Um, And lo and behold, one day she walked over to a student and corrected them with their hand placements. Mm. And that told me the child was listening. And then uh, I decided, you know what, Kaylin should do a little bit more. So she started helping me out in the office. And as she was helping me sanitize mannequins one day, she said, watch, gam, gam. And she started doing compressions, and quite frankly, she was doing them quite well. Oh, well, she did. Um, oh, back then, she was about three or four. Oh. And uh, uh, that was really fun for her. I ended up, I gave her a little desk with a little nameplate in the office, and uh, uh, she was in charge of all my inventory. I made sure she did inventory on all my supplies, and she told me when I needed stuff ordered. So she learned how to count by counting inventory. Uh, But at that particular point, we still thought she was a little bit young, but she was surrounded by emergency responders. Her grandpa's a medic, grandma's a a former firefighter, and her dad is an EMT, and mom is, you know, a CNA. But she's been around the medical field, and so she had a natural interest. So we continued, you know, encouraging her, and she heard conversations around the table whenever we would have dinners together and talk. And she picked up on everything. It's amazing what kids pick up on. Um, They are little sponges. Um, But we decided, now that she's 12, we decided, yeah, she's old enough. She understands. Uh, She's actually, um, unfortunately, been on an emergency scene So, um, uh, unfortunately, but uh, it did make a lasting impression on her to want to help others. Um, So, when she turned 12, she said, Grandma, I want to get certified. So, we put her through the course, and she has her certifications at 12 years old. She can definitely do compressions, which is a good thing for me, because, quite frankly, I'm a survivor of what's known as a double whittle maker. Um, I had two, uh, what's called a widow maker a couple years back. Um, I am now sporting two lovely shiny brand new stints that actually, um, my heart attack was a positive thing for me. Um, I was in the right place at the right time with the right people who had training and who recognized and they reacted properly. Um, so they got me the help that I needed. Um, but There's always that possibility once you have one, there's always a possibility you can have another. Uh, So, luckily, I have surrounded myself with incredible people that have had training, which is probably why I'm so enthusiastic about it today. I want as many people as I can to get their certifications. The one thing that people really need to understand is that emergencies can happen anywhere, anytime, to anyone. And like I said earlier, it's human nature to want to help one another. So to have those skills is really important. I would love to know that the person standing behind me in the grocery store can do CPR if I ever need it. Okay, Um, I I know that my granddaughter would be able to help me if I were in that situation, if it were just her and I. I'd rather she have the training and be comfortable with that topic um, rather than be traumatized. So um she's one of those rare people like I said who almost like me I guess my dad groomed me for the military and I've kind of groomed her to be an emergency responder in the future I guess you would say history repeats itself right? So <laughs> it's a cycle.
1: Yes. And we we are a product of it's our of our environment. Definitely. And you know and your environment that you created this this taking care of people and and using those skills right. to take a care of certain individuals, you know. Now, you, you mentioned before your granddaughter did something special.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, I raised two boys. I have two sons. Um, it took a long time to get some estrogen in the house. So when Kaylin came along, we were very excited to have a little girl. Um and quite frankly, she's got Poppy wrapped around her little finger. She's got me wrapped around her little finger. Um, she asked us for anything, and we'll break our necks to get it for her. Well, one day she uh, approached me, and she was about 10 years old, you know, 9, 10 years old. She approached me, and she said, Gam Gam, I, I want a purse. And I was, like, so excited. My little girl wants a purse, you know. Next is makeup and hairbrush and all kinds of things. So I was really excited about that. So I said, sure, game, game, I'll take you to go buy a purse. So I loaded her up in the car. We went we went shopping. She picked out a little white purse that had a big letter K on it for her name. And then I thought, well, she needs some makeup. That's what she's wanting, to carry makeup. She's at that age, right? So I took her over and was thinking she wanted to pick out some lip gloss or something, right? No, I got a lecture, Uh, She said, Gam Gam, we're in the wrong place. I said, what do you mean we're in the wrong place? She goes, this is not what I want. I said, well, what do you want? And she goes, it's over there. And she pointed toward the pharmaceutical area Mm. (laughs) in the store, took me over there, and the girls started loading the shopping cart with first aid material, you know, gauze pads, tape, band-aids, She wanted anything and everything in there that she might need if she needed a first aid kit. So she literally was building her own first aid kit. So, okay, sure, Gam Gam will do this for you. So we did that. She built her little first aid kit in her little K purse. And she carried that purse with her everywhere. Um, In fact, I think she still carries it. But... uh, Uh, Lo and behold, one day, uh, her mom and dad got a phone call from school because apparently a child had gotten injured on the playground and Kalen was there with her magical purse Mm -hmm. and she rendered care and she took care of the injury Um, and they wanted to thank the parents for making sure she was always prepared. And we were like, oh, that's awesome, that's great, you know, thank you very much. And uh, we're glad and very proud of Kaylin's reaction. And then it was about a week later, phone rang again, and it's the school, and Mom and Dad are going, oh, no, what now? And uh, um, lo and behold, while she was walking through the hallways, one of the teachers fell on the stairs and cracked her head pretty good. Kaylin happened to be right there with her little white purse, and she rendered care, and she did everything properly, Um, took over the scene, started telling people to go to the office, have them call 911, um, and uh, um, they got help for the individual, and she ended up getting a couple stitches. But they were so excited and so proud of Kaylin, she ended up getting an award, so we were really excited for her. But, yeah, little Kaylin and her little magical first aid, Oh, that's that's good, but that
1: that kind of shows that is never too young to learn.
0: No, they're never too young to learn, and like I said, children are sponges, and it's so important to talk to them about how to respond to an emergency. We talk to kids, and, and it's a very important conversation. Uh, we talk to them in October about fire safety, right? That's Fire Safety Awareness Month. We talk to them how to escape a house when it's burning and to go to a safe place or to stop, drop, and roll. Um, then we turn around and we talk to them about what to do with severe weather, what they, what they should do when the sirens go off and where they should go. Um, what we don't do, the conversation we don't have, is first aid and emergency medical response. Um, as a first responder, I can't tell you how many times I would find very, very traumatized children from witnessing horrendous, you know, uh, really, really bad incidences, and they didn't know what to do. Yes, they feel unprepared. You know? And there is, any adult would feel, and this is one of the reasons why my husband's actually a paramedic to this day, um, there is nothing worse than feeling helpless when you want to help somebody, um, so that training, if you're, if you have proper training, that training just kind of kicks in secondhand in the event of an emergency. If you don't have it, then that's when panic kicks in. That's when trauma kicks in. You know, um, when it comes to children, they are such <sighs> little sponges where they absorb Everything, and having a simple conversation about how to render first aid or showing them a first aid kit and what's inside of it and how to use it properly and reminding them to call 911 if there's an emergency, you know, things like that. So many kids today are left <sighs> watching their younger siblings and taking care of younger siblings. That's true. They need That's to be prepared. True. That's true.
1: That's true. More yeah. and more
0: parents of... Well, they're, you have to have a two-income household these days, and more and more parents are absent while older siblings are doing their best to raise their, you know, I won't say raise, but take care of their younger siblings. In the event of an emergency, they go through major panic if they don't ha- if they're not prepared. So I encourage parents, please talk to your kids about this. And like I said, get them comfortable with a first aid kit. Children love, especially young ones, love to play dress up. They love to do role playing. They like to play doctor and nurse. Let them. That's how they're going to learn. You know, let them have their own first aid kits. Teach them how to do direct pressure dressings. Um, talk to them about when is the proper time to call 911, you know. Um, but that would help prepare them for an actual incident, you um, They'll know a little bit more what to expect. I do encourage parents to put them in first aid classes if at all possible, if you feel they're old enough to handle that course. But if you think about it, um, if you're familiar with the Boy Scouts, they teach basic first aid right then and there, you know. Um, I've actually had quite a few Boy Scouts contact me doing treasure hunts for first aid equipment. So, I mean, even the Boy Scouts have worked First aid in there, and it's been in there for a long time. So I'd like to see it happen for younger people. Do you feel that this should be almost like a requirement? Oh, yeah. Well, right now, um, there's a little thing called Lawrence Law. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Lawrence Law is um, actually active in the state. Um, But it does require that all high school students have that training. They don't have to be certified, but they must have that training before they graduate. Hmm. So um, it's actually um, a fantastic law. The thing is, is they'll take a a class in, in gym class or health class. But unfortunately, if they go into the workforce, a lot of employers will want them to have that certification. Okay. So, yeah. Um, But it is a great law that's out there. Um, I'm hoping, and, and it's still early in the game, but I'm pretty sure it has saved lives just having the training alone.
1: So, so here in the community here, do you feel that you should, what grade or age should you offer this training to
0: Quite frankly, like I said, there's really not an age. Uh, it's can the child do compressions, okay? Uh, if they can do uh, because when you do compressions for an adult, your compressions need to be at least two inches deep. So if a child can is can put the weight behind there and do a two inch compression, then they're, they can take that class and get that certification. Um, if, uh, uh, they can't quite do two inches, then maybe they should do, um, or learn pediatric, um, child CPR because it's about two inches for an infant, inch and a half, but they have to be able to put the weight behind it to get that compression in there. Um, I was fortunate enough, my granddaughter, uh, she is my, my, she's a tough girl, Uh, but she's been able to put the weight behind her compressions for a long time and make my mannequins click, so I know she's going that depth, you know. And like I said, she was able to do it for a fact at 10. Um, At 10, she was definitely doing her at least 2 inches deep compressions. At 3, while a little tank she was at 3, she wasn't quite getting there, but she knew the motions, you know. Um, so it just really depends on the age, all right? And well, not so much the age, but the size and can they get that weight behind that compression.
1: So having this certification and obtaining this knowledge and what to do in an emergency situation, by having this, does this open you up for another skill level that you have to for employees to...
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, you start out getting your your basic certifications, right? Um, and a lot of employers do require it. It's an OSHA requirement for them. Um, and a lot of the classes I teach are at it during, you know, at industries. I'll go out in the field. Consider as OSHA. Yeah. Okay, but I'll go out at industries, and I will teach uh, CPR for them, or I'll do bloodborne pathogens. Or first aid, um, just depending on what that particular company needs. Um, most of my classes are built around what each individual or industry requires or what they need. Um, I just, so I try to build that class around what they want. Um, each class, it, it just or each module that we go through in there. If a person decides they uh, just want adult CPR um, instead of Pediatric CPR, then we do just adult CPR, AED, first aid. Uh, that is one thing. With the R21 update, they have combined CPR and AED together. Used to be two separate modules. Now they're, they're all together. Um, and then, of course, there's the first aid portion of the class itself. Um, it just really depends on what each individual feels their need is. So I'll have some people say they don't need... First aid, they just want CPR and AED. Um, If you work for a company that has an AED on site, they are supposed to have people trained to use an AED. Um, And AEDs are incredible tools. Um, I always tell my students, don't ever be intimidated or afraid of an AED. A lot of people get afraid of them when they see them. Uh, It's a a device that Uh provides an electrical shock, okay? And people, when they hear electrical and shock, they kind of have a tendency to back away from it. AEDs actually are extremely safe. All you have to do is remember to turn it on and follow the instructions. Um, It will tell you everything you need to do step by step. They have a wonderful way of calming a scene down and taking over. You just have to follow the instructions, They do save lives. Statistically, um, for every minute that CPR and AED are withheld, their chances of survival are cut down by 10%. That's why one of the most important things about this training is learning to recognize and react to it. A lot of people have a hard time recognizing when it is a life threatening emergency. We'll definitely teach that to you, okay, things to look for, what you need to be watching for. What is the statistic about who and how many heart attacks occur every day? Oh, gosh, I couldn't give you a number off the top of my head. Um, unfortunately, it's way more than what needs to be. Um, a lot of it has to do, especially in this nation, um, our diet, our activities, um, we're a little bit different, and we do have a high risk in this country. Um, you know, and, and the cost of food right now is It's so crazy. So, you know, it's
1: forcing people to eat.
0: Yeah, who, it's crazy.
1: You know, cheap. Right.
0: Um, and the best thing you could do is try and eat as healthy as you can. Um, I will tell you right now, um, I am a southern girl. I was born and raised on everything fried and fat and smothered in mm. gravy which is the absolute worst thing you can do, okay? (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, it did play a role. My diet did play a role in my development of two of the uh, uh, widowmakers, the blockages in my lower left ventricle, okay? Um, The other thing is... I'm on the go all the time, and everybody is these days, you know. Uh, They go from place to place. They're on heavy time schedules and time constraints. And like I said, families are in a hurry. And unfortunately, we do eat a lot of fast food, you know, as a result. Um, I found that a lot of my meals prior to were taken in the car on the go. I'd gone through a drive through (laughs) you know. Um, So... Unhealthy habits can definitely do some damage to you. Um, so now after I've had had everything that happened with my heart, I do try to eat a little bit more healthier. Um, uh, quite frankly, I do more salads than what I've ever done. I do love my salads. I like salads. I do too. Though. But the other thing is I have found a way to get more vacation time. As a result of my heart attack, I go fishing now. Fish is (laughs) very good for your heart. So, needless to say, my husband and I, whenever we get a chance, we will take off and go fishing. And I do like to keep that stocked in my freezer as well. But I do try to eat healthier, so I don't have to go through this again. I try to take more walks than what I used to. I definitely have a deeper appreciation especially for nature, getting out and seeing the world a little bit more on foot. Um, uh, But getting that exercise, eating healthier, um, if you know you run a risk, especially if it's a genetic factor. Now, that's one thing for a fact. Yeah. Genetics. Genetics play a big role.
1: And if you got, if if the parent is eating mm -hmm. bad,
0: 9 out of 10 don't have much time are learning those eating what? habits what? as well. Exactly. But so it is a big genetic, um, it's a generational, definitely a generational issue because you learn from your parents. And like I said, my mama was set from the South. She fried everything, all right? She covered everything in gravy too, uh, which is where I got that from. But my mother also had heart issues as well. And uh, prior to that, her mother had heart issues. Um, I'm part Native American, and quite frankly, our ethnicity has a role to play as well. So it really, there's a lot of factors that get in there that can mess with your health, that can cause things like heart attacks or strokes or diabetes. Um, So the best thing to do is be aware of your family history.
1: So CPR go hand in hand because of our diet. Our diet is so crazy, and food costs is going up so high.
0: Sometimes it's cheaper to run through the fast food than it is through the grocery store.
1: So therefore you need to have that tool of understanding that skill because it's the potential is greater or accident to take place, unknowingly.
0: Right, right. So if you if you're gonna run through the fast food, try and find that healthier option on their menu. Is, yeah. Oh gosh, if I, like I said, McDonald's, uh, <laughs> McDonald's for one. I can go through there and look at their salads. They do have a a lovely salad, um, or I'll go look at chicken wraps. You know, things like that. Um, so it is possible to actually go out and eat a healthy meal. Um, you don't have to go for the greasiest option on the menu. Um, quite frankly, uh, just even thinking about a McDonald's burger gives me chest pains. <laughs> uh, I, I just, that grease alone. Uh, but, yeah, there are options out there for people to take into account, they can eat healthy when they go out to eat, especially with a fast food restaurant. Most of them do offer salads or wraps, things like that. Um, but like I said, if you have a long history like me dealing with fried food, ha-ha, <laughs> <laughs> yay. Now, is there an insurance
1: benefit that you can get in terms of cheaper because you have certification?
0: Um, There are some Companies that have reported their ISO ratings have actually dropped due to their training. So, those OSHA requirements, you know, do play a role in their ISO ratings. So, um, that is another option for employers to consider. Uh, Check with their insurance companies, see if it's going to help lower those ratings. If so, fantastic, you know. uh, Regardless... It's important training that I think everybody should have. Um, even if it's just the basics, everybody should have that training because you don't know when you're going to need it. Um, is this something that you have to renew every year so often? Your CPR certifications are good for two years. So CPR, first aid, AED will last two years. Uh, if you do something like bloodborne pathogens, that's a one year certification. Um, we also do BLS, basic life support, which is geared more toward the medical field uh, for individuals who work in that field. Those certifications are good for two years. Um, so, and here we're coming up, we're working on our EMT schools, so yay, that's, that's next. Good. So, uh, that's good. So yeah, our first one will start next week. Um, we do still have an opening, so if anybody is okay, interested in that. Okay. Good okay, new gen EM, new gen EMT. Uh, they can contact the Ink Spot, and uh, we'll definitely get them the information and tell them how to get enrolled in that. Um, but that is a fantastic program that we're really excited about. So it's geared more toward um, uh, minorities getting uh, the information out there, making sure they get the proper training. And they get their state licensing. Actually, it'll be a national license for them in that class. Um, national. Now, what makes the difference between national and state? Okay. So, you I knew you were going to ask me that. All right. State has some, you know, one set of requirements. Um, and state can actually be uh, very, very picky sometimes. But... Uh, then there's the national, requir- or the national certification. Um, you can, with the national certification, you can work pretty much anywhere in the country. You just got to test out in their system, okay, their protocols, each individual area's protocols. Uh, state, uh, their testing has, and that class, is extremely hard. We do a national certification. What makes it hard? Um, what makes it hard? Uh, well like I said, each individual area in the state has their own set of protocols. Um, If you go to, um, say you go from Illinois to Missouri, Missouri's test actually has a lot more pharmaceuticals listed on their protocols. You have to know what those protocols are and what uh, medications can be administered. Uh, With EMT, with that school Uh, They're not the ones to administer the medications. It'll be their paramedic ride-along, their partner, that would be administering those medications. So the EMT class itself actually is a great place to start until you learn or you get more oriented toward advancing to the paramedic level. So um, they wouldn't have to worry so much about the medications. So that is one of the hardest areas to get. Um, How long does it take? um, For our EMT class, it is a um, 15-week process, 15 weeks. Then they can take their state exam. Um, They will have to do clinical time in the ER, and then they'll do ride-along time on an ambulance. We're currently in talks with uh, AMR, a.k.a. Abbott, um, getting our students to ride along with them. Um, and we're working with HSHS St. Mary's to make sure our students can do their clinical times in there. Um, the EMS coordinator, Jack Pugh, is a fabulous guy to work with. Uh, pretty much anything we've needed. They are so excited about this course. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but do you have any idea where our um, today's uh emergency medical response program originated from?
1: No I, have no, idea. no,
0: I have no idea. Trivia, I want you to look it up. was okay. your homework. I no, want no, you... No, I can make a guess. Okay, guess. Give me a okay, guess. the question is... Where did our current EMS program, our emergency medical response program, where did it originate? Where did it come from? How did we get to this? I was saying...
1: Through labor associated, workforce a particular I'm gonna save, field, you. Save, <laughs>
0: save you I'm gonna save you. Okay, your homework. Go on YouTube. I want you to Google a little thing, and it was not little, called Freedom House in the 1960s during the Civil hmm. rights movement. okay? It's called Freedom House. Wonderful, wonderful thing that happened while at the same time so upsetting too. But Google it. So the physician who actually um, invented CPR, um, he noticed a problem that was going on in the inner cities. Um, And he decided... That the inner cities needed—they um, needed their own emergency response program because what was happening, uh, essentially, uh, in the uh, neighborhoods, uh, quite frankly, there wasn't an ambulance. There wasn't—they weren't getting emergency medical response. So when there was an incident in the inner city. They were lucky if PD showed up, all right, and I'm talking, um, I believe this was in, I want to say, and I'm probably going to get the city wrong, um, I want to say it was in Cleveland, uh, but Cleveland or Philadelphia. Anyway, uh, the long and short of the story is they weren't getting emergency medical response. There was no emergency medical response. And when they would call for help, it would be the police department. Sometimes they would show up. Sometimes they wouldn't show up. Unfortunately, families were watching their family members die in front of them. Uh, They would bleed out in front of them. They could not get help. If PD showed up, they would throw them in the squad car, take them and drop them off at the hospital at the doors. There was no care. So... um, Quite frankly, the inventor of CPR approached anybody that would listen to him. And uh, our first, quite frankly, our first emergency medical responders were people from the street. They were prostitutes. They were drug dealers. They were um, anybody that he could get to listen to him, and he offered them uh, a way to get cleaned up. Um, and a way to get training and career. They developed our first ambulance, and that's where that program came from. A lot of the equipment that paramedics and EMTs are trained on today were actually developed by Freedom House, and they're still using a lot of that equipment today for training. So our entire, and if you think about it, it's awesome, our entire emergency medical response was developed in the inner city for response. And uh, what happened was the people who lived in the suburbs were a little bit jealous that they were getting better medical care in the (laughs) inner city than what they could get in the suburbs. So they got a little bit upset over that. Uh, But I want you to go and watch the videos on Freedom House. It's an incredible legacy, and it's definitely one to be proud of. But that little program ended up going national, all right, and it spread across the country. But then it spread internationally, and that's why a lot of other countries now have the EMS programs they do. So, yeah, Research Freedom House, 1960s civil rights movement. So, And it's not taught in schools, and it should be. (laughs) <laughs> I agree
1: that, you know, more sports, sports is getting more physical. Uh-huh. I, I feel that, you know, athletes should be taught these skills.
0: Oh, definitely. Oh, my gosh. Um, we actually, when we teach, um, we used to uh, do a couple classes out at St. T when I worked full time for the Red Cross. Um and there was a particular basketball, I think he was a basketball player, um, who ended up going into cardiac arrest on the court. Mm. And thank goodness they had um an AED on site and they had trained people on site. Um the individual is doing much better now, of course. He did survive. Um and in fact I ended up teaching another class at one of the firehouses and his brother sat in that class and said, Hey, that was my brother um, great. How is he doing? Oh, he's doing great. <laughs> so, yeah. Um there's always the chance that injuries can occur and quite frankly, a lot of times if you have something going on with your heart, it's not discovered until it's too late. That's true. So, and that's like with things like um if you have a a lot of people and this is a really weird one. Um, but there are so many people that are walking around today that have, um, they have blood disorders they don't even know they have because those disorders aren't tested. You know, they're not, they don't look for those unless they're looking for them specifically. Um, I personally should they look for
1: them specifically,
0: it would be great, but there's so many, you know, how would they know to test for that one specifically, you know? Um, a lot of times you don't know it until uh, that particular pathogen has been living in your body and you know, thriving and multiplying till it's strong enough to finally attack an organ, and that's when it is discovered. So um, I personally carry two um, pathogens in my body. I have two immunodeficiencies. Uh, which weren't discovered until after my heart attack. It took the heart attack to actually discover the blood disorder. But I personally suffer from a little thing called polycythemia, um, which essentially is not contagious for anybody. But for me, it causes me to have a very weak immune system. So if I'm exposed to something, I can easily get that, whatever it is. So. So how many people have that?
1: Disease.
0: Oh, blood disorders? There's there are so many. I mean, we're talking um, so many different ones. The most common ones, of course, are going to be your hepatitises, um, AIDS, immunodeficiencies. Um, like I said, my particular immunodeficiency is polycythemia. There's polycythemia and polycythemia vera. Uh, you don't want your polycythemia to turn into polycythemia vera because then basically uh, it's getting into the bones Uh, It's in my bloodstream right now, but if it gets into the bones, it turns into what's commonly called leukemia. So we have to make sure that all of my levels stay at a certain number in order for it not to get into the bones. So I have a lot of blood drawn from me um, at different times during the month. So just to keep a maintenance level on my blood. And since we're
1: living in such a stressful world, the chances of something, somebody having a heart attack is, is great.
0: Oh, yeah. It's there, definitely. It's definitely. If you notice a family member who's not quite themselves, um, their skin uh, may appear pale or grayish. Um, they may have shortness of breath. Um, I personally, with mine... I would have the shortness of breath. I would have. um, I was tired all the time, and by tired, I mean not just a little tired. I'm talking. uh, I was borderline narcoleptic. By noon, I would hit a wall, and I had to go to to sleep. Yeah, we 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 blame it on a lot of us lack of sleep, our schedule, our schedules, our schedules. Yeah, but I know um, mine. I had to have a nap every day, otherwise I was not going to make it through the day. Um, Quite frankly, that was probably one of the positives because I really enjoyed those naps. But (laughs) uh, the thing is, is I had to have those naps. I've taught this class for many, many years, and here's what happens with cardiac, all right? Individuals who have cardiac issues will never see those issues. They don't. They really depend on the people around them to see what see the changes. Um, with me, I had an excuse for every symptom I had. All right, I blamed. I found excuses. Nobody wants to deal with their own mortality, but that's what cardiac patients do. I was blaming, um, quite frankly. Uh, The sweating, I blamed that on hot flashes, okay? (laughs) Um, I blamed the shoulder pain that I had on an old rotator cuff injury. I was very angry at the ortho for not getting that right. Um, The pain in my hand, I blamed that on corporal tunnel. I was spending too much time at the keyboard, you know, putting in paperwork and and getting everybody's certifications done. I went out to Walmart and bought a brace because – the pain had traveled down into my hand. I thought I had a tunnel. Lower back pain, I blamed that on the equipment I carried around. You know, um, but I had an excuse for every symptom. The nausea, waking up in the middle of the night from a dead sleep, feeling like I needed to throw up uh, because my pain was like a p- boiling up pressure in my chest. Um, And quite frankly, I thought maybe if I just went to the bathroom and got sick, it would alleviate that pressure and it would go away. Oh, heck no. Uh, (laughs) Here's what happens with heart attack pain. Uh, And this is generally how it starts out. You may have it for about three to five minutes, enough for you to go, oh, I have heartburn, and you'll take some Tums and forget about it, right? Because it'll ease up after three to five minutes. And then later on, it may not be that day. It may be the next day or the day after. Guess what? That feeling is going to come back again. You're going to have chest pain that feels like heartburn. And that will continue to happen. And then instead of it happening every, other, every few days, it will start happening every day. All right? Um,
1: That's when you know that you was on the borderline of a heart attack?
0: No. No. I stayed in denial the entire time. Here's the thing. When it got bad, it woke me... It was waking me up from a dead sleep in the middle of the night, all right? Uh, but that... The the really bad incident that really did me was, um, quite frankly, in the middle of the night, I woke up. Um, I had the chest pain. I had the rotator cuff pain, okay? Um, and I had the pain deep in the bone in my hand. And... I was making my excuses, but that nausea wouldn't go away. So quite frankly, I, in the middle of the night, stumbled out of my bed. And then um, as I was walking to the bathroom to get sick, my foot tangled up in my cell phone cord. (laughs) And thank God it did. I didn't care that it was tangled up in there. I let that thing just drag behind me on the floor. I didn't care about it. All I cared about was Growing up and going back to sleep. That's all I wanted. Was that exhausted? When I got to the bathroom, what I didn't realize was as I was dragging the phone, it had dialed the last person I would called before I went to bed, which happened to be my husband, who was on shift at the uh, ambulance. So he luckily picked up the phone and he could hear everything that was going on. Uh, but as I got to the bathroom... I kind of collapsed on the floor with my head on the toilet. And I just wanted to throw up, but I couldn't. But the bathroom floor, that cold tile on my bathroom floor felt so good. All I wanted to truly do was lay on that floor and go to sleep. Now, what do you think would happen if I'd gone to sleep? You wouldn't have woke up? There's no way I would have woke up. That simple. Uh, So here I am on the bathroom floor wanting to lay down on that nice cold tile and go to sleep. It had more power over me than anything. I knew something was wrong in my mind, but I didn't care. I just wanted to sleep. And uh, um, quite frankly, as I laid there with my head leaning on the toilet, I heard a voice I did. I heard a voice. Mm, the voice saying, And uh, um, quite frankly, I was like, this is it. I'm, I'm hearing voices. This is this is it. I'm just going to lay here. But then the, I started understanding what the muffled voice was saying, and it was, honey, pick up the phone, okay? <laughs> pick up the phone right now. Uh, turned out that my phone, while it was bouncing, called my husband. He was hearing everything. And I picked up the phone, and he said, you're on the floor, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm just going to lay here and go to sleep. He said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You need to get up. Get up right now. He said, I'm bringing the ambulance. You need to get up. Okay? (laughs) So. uh, Was you trained at that time? Oh, yeah, I was trained. But when it comes to cardiac, as I stated, I don't care who you are. When it comes to cardiac, you will make up excuses for your body's failures. And you will look for reasons. And it's never the right reason. In fact, my doctor looked at me. and Okay, I got to the emergency room. They ran a simple, and this is all it takes. It's a simple blood test. All right? You can have EKGs. And EKGs sometimes will show you when there's something wrong with your heart. Sometimes. But I had had numerous EKGs that month, and they never once showed a thing. I was having a silent, what's known as a silent. It didn't register on there. However, what registered was the blood test. There's a little thing called a cardiac profile. If you think you're having a heart attack or if you're having chest pain like that, then request a cardiac profile. It's a simple blood test from your doctor. That is the one that's going to confirm whether or not you're having a heart attack. Right? They're looking at your enzyme levels. My troponin levels were skyrocketing. And quite frankly, that's how they determined my heart attack. Whoa. So, yeah, it's a simple blood test. Did you ask for that blood test? Uh, actually, no, my doctor did. And even at that point, even when they're telling me I was having a heart attack, I was still in denial. They were going, "Uh, Mrs. Duncan, we have to admit you. And I'm like, no, you're not. And they're like, no, you don't understand. We have to admit you. You're having a heart attack. And I was still going, no, I'm not. I'm going to go home. I'm going to cook dinner. If it's worse, I'll come back. Okay, (laughs) You would have never came back. I never would have came back. And, yeah, once they discovered how bad the blockage was, when they did the heart cath, that's when they said, um, you wouldn't have made it through the weekend. You could have coughed and, not, and been done. Mm. So, yeah. So, like I said, I was lucky. I was in the right place with the right people at the right time. Thank goodness my phone had called my husband. Other
1: people don't have a husband on the other end who got that much knowledge.
0: They don't have that. That's why it's so important that people take training and they're aware of all those symptoms and how to recognize it and put it together. A cardiac patient can only look at each individual symptom. A family member can look at the big picture, you know, or a coworker can look at the big picture. A cardiac patient's too busy making um, excuses for what's going on with them. They will never see it. So what would you relate that, what can't you relate that to? <sighs> Denial, um, fear of one's mortality. Um, mine was, I'm too young for this. It'll never happen to me. I'm too young for it. That's like an addict denying addict.
1: It is.
0: It is. So, yeah, I had been teaching that class for years. You would think I would have seen the symptoms. I saw the symptoms, but I made excuses for each one of them, which is what a cardiac patient does. So, yeah, they really depend on the people around them to see those changes and then to encourage them to get to the doctor and get the proper medical care. So if you can beat them, I mean, if I had gone into cardiac arrest alone, at home, that would have been the problem. And that's the other thing. A lot of people don't understand that there is a big difference between a heart attack and cardiac arrest, all right? Heart attacks can lead to cardiac arrest, but with a heart attack, your heart's still beating, you still have a pulse, you're still breathing, whereas in cardiac arrest, there's nothing. You don't, you're not breathing, there's no pulse, you know, um, but a lot of people kind of group the two together. Heart attacks can lead to cardiac arrest, but they are not cardiac arrest until they actually, their heart stops beating. So I kind of got to the punchline before, you know, I kind of made it there before my heart decided to stop. But had I gone to sleep on that floor, I wouldn't have woken up. There are so many people who went to sleep on the floor. Exactly. My mother went to sleep on the floor. So, yeah. So... How did you approach life after it? I had, and it was, I know this sounds terrible. My heart attack was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, Hmm. Unfortunately, not a lot of people can say that. But um, when they put that stent in, and I was awake for it. It's a simple procedure. Um, I was terrified when they said they were going to do a heart cath. Uh, it sounds scary, right? Um, but my sense of curiosity got me, right? I had to watch on the screen. It was actually very cool. Um, I you watched did. It. I watched it on the screen did you wanted, wanted to, to watch it? it.
1: okay <laughs> They gave you some type of medication,
0: oh yeah. they gave me a local. And I was able to watch on the screen. I will tell you, DMH is cardiac. Their heart and lung center is phenomenal. They did wonders for me. Um, That staff is incredible out there. So um, I was able to watch on the screen, and it was very surreal when they said, we have to do a heart cath. Um, But you know in some type of... I was familiar with the the terms that they were using.
1: But some people now would... Take words like that they don't know nothing about, understand the language or word definitions, and, and get frightened
0: to death. Once again, it's why this training is so important. Let's have a conversation and normalize it. You know what I mean? Let's make it so they can understand. And if you're a patient's family member, you are their advocate. If you don't understand what the doctors are saying... You make them repeat it and you make them explain it. All right, that's simple. Um, But uh, you make sure that you understand everything that's going on with your family member. With me, when I had that heart cath and I was watching the screen and I was watching everything that was going on in there, um, quite frankly, I could see when they put the stent, the first stent in, and they opened it and you saw the blood rush through. The way that the blood was supposed to rush through. Mine had not been flowing properly for years. How did you feel at that moment? Uh, at that moment, at that particular moment, that was the first one. It was like, wow, that was weird, right? Then they put the second stent in, opened it up, and then that blood went rushing through. It was at that moment, once that second blockage got cleared, and the Oxygen-rich blood was flowing the way it's supposed to flow, right? Um, that was almost like instantaneous energy rush. Um, my body had been oxygen, oxygen-deprived oxygen for so long. and But it was like drinking tr- 10 of those energy drinks at once. I wanted to get off that table and run a marathon. I had so much energy, it was insane, and it was instantaneous. I felt 10 years younger that day. Um, The poor nurse up in my room had a hard time keeping me still because all I wanted to do was go walk. I wanted to run the halls and walk. I wanted to do a power walk, which is eventually what I ended up doing. Um, But I power walked as soon as they said it was safe for me to get up. I power walked the halls up there. Oh gosh, I know I went past the nurses' station ten, fifteen times, and she was finally on that on that last round. She's like, "You need to go back to bed now," and I'm like, "But I feel so good." Mm. You know? mm. It's like you had
1: an IV. Had an IV.
0: Uh, exactly, but it was instantaneous energy because my body had gone without oxygen-rich blood for so long. So. What happened to me was a very positive thing. It renewed my energy. Um, I ended up going to cardiac therapy um, rehab, and it was awesome. I had so much fun in that rehab center. Um, but uh, mine was a very, very positive, and I got very lucky. It was a positive effect for me. Um Not everybody gets that. Um, So that's why I really, really have to stress. If you see a family member and things aren't looking right, um, they're having chest pain or they're waking up in the middle of the night with the chest pain, the shortness of breath, the shoulder pain, um, their skin is kind of grayish, get them help. you You know what? Most of the time, most people don't even know the symptoms. And that's why I want the training out there. That's why I'm grateful for this conversation today. It's an opportunity to get that info out there. Um, It is tragic when something happens to a family member and you didn't know they were having problems to begin with. I don't know about y'all, but my mama wouldn't complain for anything in the world. All right? All right she could have be having the worst day, feel horrible and she still wasn't going to complain or tell me about it. And that's just how she was. And I'm sure there's a lot of mamas out there. They don't tell their children things they don't want them to worry. And dads, I'm sure. Um I know I know my husband's that way. He won't when he's not feeling well, he doesn't discuss it. I think the older we get, quite frankly, we're all like, you know, I know I am. I'm an old dog. If I'm not feeling good, leave me alone. Let me go lick my wounds. I'll be fine later. You know. And we don't want our children worrying. So we don't tell them things. If they start seeing it, that's when they'll put everything together and get the help, you know? So yeah, I, I just want everybody to get that information. If they want training, I will gladly if they just want an informational um, they don't want their certification, I am very happy to give them that information. Um, if they want certification, they can come to me. I'll give, get make sure they get that certification that they want, all right? But at least get the information and then open that conversation up at home. Okay, that's the one thing that really needs to be done. Um, this training, statistically, you'll use this training on family on friends or on, you know, it's it's really not something that's used a whole lot at work, but employers are very good about making sure their employees are trained. But two to one, you'll use this training on a family member or a loved one um, or a close, you know, friend uh, before you do anything else, you know. So it is important that everybody have that.
1: Do you get a certification? Do you get a card or something that they carry with them?
0: yes. The American Red Cross issues a digital certificate now. We used to do the little hard copies, the wallet size or the 8x10 size, which you can still get that. But right now um, we have gone down to doing digital certifications. Um, So in your email you would get um, a copy of your certification for you to print out. Um, I always tell people print a copy. Frame a copy, file a copy, save a copy on your hard drive, take a picture of it with your phone. That way you've always got it with you, okay? Um, uh, If it gets lost or damaged in any way, they can call me. I'll hunt it down for them, okay? Or they can call 1-800-RED-CROSS, and they can hunt it down for them. So one or the other. Is Is there a fee for this? Uh, there are fees involved in your certifications. It just depends on basically which modules you want to take. And that's how the Red Cross sets up those pricings. Uh, so I think the uh, lowest of those classes is $77, and it's for one module. Um, the highest one is 117 But they go by... How many modules you're taking? So, say a daycare provider calls me, and they say, "Holly, we just need pediatric." Then I'm going to give them pediatric only. So, if you think that you need both adult and pediatric, then we'll do adult and pediatric. You know, if you don't want the first aid but you want the CPR, then great, we can do that too. Hmm. What professions
1: require you require them to know this? to have this certification
0: um professions that require it um anybody who works in the medical field has to have this training anybody who works in the child care field has to have this training um so if they're a daycare provider or an educator generally they have to have that um a lot of places in industry require that they have this training um so if you work in an industry and you stand the chances of having to respond to a medical emergency, then yes, they're going to require that training. So, yeah. It, it's it's something, quite frankly, that a lot of places do require, um, but once we get past that stage, say we move on to a different job or we retire or relocate, we don't have the opportunity to renew those certifications. So that's when people generally will hunt me out for individual certifications.
1: How do they get in contact with you?
0: They can call me. My number is 217-413-0592. They can contact the ink spot here on Eldo. Um, They'll definitely know how to get hold of me. All right. But that's generally the best way. I also have a Facebook page, Emergency Training Providers um so feel free to look me up there um but generally just give me a call I'm easy to get in touch with okay well
1: then I want to thank you oh you're
0: most welcome I've enjoyed it
1: coming today um make sure that you hit the subscribe button and like because it's important for our station to grow um so um Till next time, if you can sing, cook or clean, you can be heard and be seen on HeggsRadio.com. Look forward to you. See you later.